Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte daher kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to another installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and this week we're going to be talking about criminal speech in Nazi Germany. One of the most distinctive things about authoritarian societies is the way that they police the language of the people who live within them. Now, those of you who are interested in the history of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or indeed any of the authoritarian societies returning to the world stage in the present day, are likely familiar with the work of George Orwell in 1984. In Orwell's dystopia, the Ministry of Truth are responsible for determining the party line, and the Thought Police prosecute anyone who disagrees with the officially determined truth. Orwell led an interesting life, and 1984 was in dialogue with the developments of his time, in many ways, he was reacting to the emergence of the post-war order, the division between the East, East and West in, in the Cold War. But at the same time, he was also hearkening back to the ideologies of the 1930s and 40s when he had fought in the Spanish Civil War on the side of Republican Spain against the fascists. The criminalization of opinion and the policing of what could and could not be said was a defining feature of the first half of the 20th century. Persisted after the war in Stalinist Russia to a great extent as well. But of course, on this podcast, what we're going to be looking at is how it played out within Nazi Germany. Now, when we look at Orwell's 1984 and we think about Nazi Germany based on popular perceptions and indeed many of the professional historians who have written about it, the focus and emphasis always lies on the idea that if one said the wrong thing, then death followed. Now, Chris and I in the podcast have complicated that to a degree looking at who who faced those types of consequences as opposed to who faced significantly more lenient treatment, but we've kind of been dancing around the outside edges of what exactly it was that was illegal and, and how were these laws set up to actually police what people said. Now, the law for protection of people and state was an emergency law that enabled the concentration camp system. But there was, as we've already discussed in the first installment of our concentration camp series, a large public backlash to what was perceived as an unjust state of emergency that was persisting. And indeed, the government reacted by developing new laws that criminalized the types of behaviors that they did not want to occur in the new Germany. One of those was political criticism. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk through all of the different laws and the development of 
what was illegal to say, and what the punishments could be if you went ahead and said it anyway. Now, there are really four steps that I'm going to look at today. Uh, first, the transformation of initial libel law, the expansion of the definition of treason, the creation of a new law against so-called malicious gossip, and finally, the wartime special penal code that specifically targeted defeatism related to the war. So we'll we'll talk through each of those and we'll kind of trace the development of how criminal speech and criminal opinion begins as something really grounded in libel law and then is expanded outward to basically render anything that the party deems inappropriate to be illegal. That said, it still occurs within very specific bounds, but uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting and it's definitely a timely topic because what started as policing objective disinformation actually provided the vehicle to criminalize subjective opinion. To begin with, I should probably define what I mean by criticism because really we're talking about a whole range of activities that really don't belong in the same categories. That's why the Nazis developed different laws to deal with different aspects of it on the one hand. But at the same time, in National Socialist thinking are defined by their shared opposition to the party as the supposed organic will of the German people. So whereas we might classify a communist who is talking about assassinating a leading member of the Nazis or killing members of the power elite to precipitate a revolution as something completely separate from somebody who says that the local party boss is a jerk or corrupt. In Nazi policing, there is a certain continuity between those. All of those statements fit on the same sliding scale to them because they reveal an underlying oppositional mentality, a, a, a gegnerische Einstellung against the National Socialist movement. These are people who are defining themselves as opponents and criticizing the movement. The question becomes one of severity, not of criminality. So when I say criticism, what I really mean is subjective opinion statements that are somehow derogatory of National Socialism. Many people disagreed with what the, the party's policies were, but if they disagreed in a way that talked about how to pursue those policies better, that was not criticism, as the Nazis defined it. If they disagreed in a way that made light of the party by telling a political joke, say, or by attacking the character of the politicians involved as the reason why it didn't work or as self-interested or as, for some reason, incompetent, or they attacked the policy as wrong-headed rather than perhaps ineffectual. You could talk about a policy perhaps being conducted in a different way that might achieve the goals it wanted to, that was okay. But criticizing the policy as stupid, that's crossing the line into undermining people's faith in the party. So there is, there is this spectrum in play here. So what are the polls on it? On the one hand, like I said, 
we have people who are essentially just let's say drunk at the bar with their friends complaining about politicians a, a beloved pastime since the beginning of mass politics so impugning the character of a Nazi politician or a Nazi policy or a state institution or really anything that had to do with government. Talking about that in a way that was derogatory is at one end of the spectrum. You have people who are just sort of blowing off steam. Then somewhere in the middle, you have people who are doing this, but then also trying to convince the people that they are talking to that there are better alternatives that are outside the Nazis. So people who persist in holding Marxist or democratic ideas, juxtaposing the accomplishments of another political ideology to the existing arrangements within Nazi Germany and using that to criticize Nazi policy or by pointing out the failures of Nazi policy and juxtaposing them to the successes of competing ideologies. Those people are somewhere in the middle. That's another step up. And that's quite dangerous because you've already positioned yourself in line with, a, with another ideology than Nazism. Now, at the far end of the spectrum, uh, in, in terms of the extremists, you have people who are openly advocating for violence or political overthrow. Now, the spectrum within political overthrow itself as kind of a subset of statements that fall under criticism is also quite varied. You have people who are making specific plans all the way down to just generally saying, oh, you know, you, you brown shirts are going to get yours someday or after the war, uh, Nazi heads will roll or something like that. All of that's treated as a violent statement in pursuit of revolution. Whereas somebody who, say, sings the Communist International or talks about how Hitler needs to go or somehow points toward a regime change or a change in government some, uh, in some way, those people are also considered to be engaged in a form of treason, actually. But we'll get into that in detail later. My point is that there is this broad range of criticism, so, uh, so to say, Opinion statements about what is wrong with the current situation or a particular politician or suggesting alternatives, God forbid, that all falls on the same spectrum of criminal opinion opposed to Nazism. And within that, you then have a sliding spectrum of severity. With that definition of criticism writ large in mind, we can turn our attention to the German Criminal Code as it was written in 1933. Or, well, rewritten, I should say. Several new editions and reworkings of existing paragraphs found their way into the new Strafgesetzbuch. Quick plug here for any of you out there who happen to be engaged in legal history and Germany, whether it is contemporary or past or change over time, anything like that. A great resource that I have relied on continually in my work is Lexitus.com, L-E-X-E-T-I-U-S.com. You can get a full version of the Strafgesetzbuch, the criminal code, on there. But not only can you get that, you can get all the various iterations of it. When you look up a specific section, it will list all of the different changes that it has undergone over time from the initial promulgation on 15 May 1871 to present day. 
So I have relied on this heavily in the past and will continue to do so in the future. It's particularly helpful when you're dealing with parts of criminal law that predate the Nazis, as we're about to see when it comes to criminal mischief and uh, libel, and also the continuity that continues after the war or tracing when particular sections of Nazi law are struck from the books. As I said, all of this begins with defamation law. The German word for defamation, Beleidigung, is actually the same word as insult. This is because German is a wonderful language that actually uses the words it means to use rather than having a bunch of different technical jargon that applies under certain circumstances. The literal translation of Beleidigung is actually kind of funny. It's another example of these great German words where you take a root word from somewhere else, you smash it up with a couple others, and as Chris says, you get a rich new meaning. The root word is lied, which is sorrow, grief, or harm, depending on the context. So when you break it down to beleidigung, you are literally begriefing someone. In English, insulting someone. In the context of law, defamation. German law made the same distinction between libel and slander as in English. Libel is something that is written, set down. Slander something that is a transitory statement, uh, usually a verbal statement, something passing non-permanent. And, of course, in both cases, a statement made to someone other than the person being insulted. These laws, as they stood in 1933, were inherited from the Kaiserreich and had been around since 1876. So, the working bits, what do you need to know? Well, it was only prosecuted on request, and the way this section of the law is written contains the threat of lengthy sentences, but tends toward fines or very short sentences. So the different paragraphs covering slander and libel use the same language. They say, whosoever asserts or disseminates a matter of fact in relation to another, which is intended to disparage or devalue them in public opinion, will, if the fact cannot be proven to be true, punished for insult. So specifically, you are making a truth claim about somebody to someone else, and you cannot provide the proof that it is true. That is what this law governs initially. If you do this, it can be 600 marks or to a year in jail. And if you do it publicly or through the distribution of some type of writing, like if you own a newspaper or you're a caricaturist or you put together a theater piece, then you can receive a fine of up to 1,500 marks or up to two years in jail. So the way that the mandatory minimums are written into the law, it expects a fine or a very minor sentence if that can't be covered, but is willing to guarantee at least a month of prison if the defamation is published. Politicians, however, are already a special protected class. If you do any of these things to a politician, someone who is in public life, as the law phrases it, then the minimum sentence raises to not less than three months if you are spreading the falsehood through print, media, or some other type of publication. What's interesting about this is that three months becomes the standard sentence for the later law against malicious gossip and for the protection of party uniforms with the Nazis bringing into power in December 1934. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So there are three limitations to this in the Nazis' eyes. One, it only applies to individuals. It doesn't apply to institutions or policies. 
Two, it only covers objective disinformation about an individual. It does not cover a subjective opinion statement. So if you just want to say that you don't like the latest government policy, that's not illegal under this. You could say that you don't like the Nazis under this, right? The, na the Nazis are a political party. They're not an individual whose rights are being damaged in some way by having disinformation spread about them. And the third part, it is a really bad look for a party that claims to be the representatives of the people to go around prosecuting said people for insulting them all the time. It would, have, it would come down to Hitler and Goebbels and Goering, the actual leaders of the party, individually going out and filing suit for defamation. That is not something that the Nazi party wants to become involved in. Because of these limitations, the Nazis begin by passing their own law designed to protect the party and government against these types of attacks. It's not even a law at first. It's actually passed as an emergency presidential decree. So the decree for protection against malicious discrediting of the national government. That's a real inspiring title, right? This decree is passed in March and essentially extends the protection of defamation law to the party and the state. It also regulates the use of party uniforms. Why is it doing this? In essence, the decree is intended to prevent objective disinformation being spread about the new government. So if you read the newspapers from this period, there is a lot of back and forth about so-called atrocity crimes. These would be cases where somebody allegedly dresses up in the uniform of the opposing side and then goes out and starts a fire or beats somebody up or essentially does something criminal in order to undermine the reputation of their opponent. Both the Nazis and the communists are alleged to have done this during the late 1920s and early 1930s. And it's no mistake that it figures quite prominently in the debate about who actually started the Reichstag fire. In fact, this is actually the decree that the special court system was set up to police. So the policing of opinion and the creation of the parallel Nazi judicial system are intertwined as they develop. The decree covers the use of party uniforms and spreading disinformation. So the way that they phrase it, whosoever engages in or threatens criminal activity against persons or property and thereby bears the uniform or badge identifying membership in an association without being a member will be punished with a penitentiary sentence in lesser cases with jail not under six months if the crime is committed with the intent of creating fear in the population or creating diplomatic difficulties for the German Reich then the punishment is a penitentiary sentence of not under three years or life. Now, this was always the lesser used section of the law, and it persists in later versions of it as well. The more important section, and the one that becomes reworked and an integral part of policing private conversation, is section three. It says, whosoever intentionally creates or disseminates an untrue or grossly distorted assertion as fact with the intent to seriously harm the well-being of the Reich or state or the reputation of the Reich government or a state government or parties or associations standing behind these governments will be punished so far as a heavier punishment is not stipulated by other provisions in the criminal code 
with a sentence of no less than three months. So through all that gobbledygook, you basically have a catch-all, you can't spread rumors about the government and make things up, or we will send you to prison for three months. In, in plain speech, that is what the new, uh, that is what the decree says. Now, what's interesting about it is that is the minimum. A more serious penitentiary sentence is possible if it, if it causes a diplomatic incident. You also don't have to be doing this maliciously. You can defame the government out of gross negligence. According to paragraph three, it says, whosoever commits the offense out of gross negligence will be punished with a prison sentence of up to three months or with a fine. So really what's happening here is it's saying, if you spread rumors about the government that are derogatory of the government or any of the Nazi party associations that currently run the government, if you make something up about us, we will send you to prison for three months. And if you spread those rumors, we will fine you and you could go to prison. So this is moving in the direction that the Nazis want to. It's extending defamation protections against rumors to the party itself. But it still doesn't cover subjective opinion. I can still just say, I don't like that Hitler guy. I don't agree with him. And that's still legal. So... In the period from February to midsummer, there is still a lot of people being thrown in concentration camps for doing just that. And the paramilitary organizations like the SA and the SS are operating alongside the police, setting up the wild concentration camps and just detaining anybody who happens to disagree with the government. However, this can't last. As we talked about previously, you begin to see this broader pushback to arbitrary policing. The response is to fall back on the criminal mischief section of the criminal code. This becomes a nice broad catch-all area that the Nazis begin to police anything that they dislike that they can't really fit into the criminal code and doesn't fall under disinformation, but is still something that they don't want happening. So the operative section is paragraph 11 of section 360. Now, under normal circumstances, this is meant to cover drunken disorderly or public nuisance. It's called grobe unfug. So it says, whosoever causes indecently disruptive noise or carries out public mischief. Now, the second part is grobe unfug, which is like coarse mischief or uh, flagrant mischief. Basically, it's your drunken disorderly clause. Normal times, it would be somebody who shouts fire in a crowded theater or, you know, is causing a noise complaint or something like that. So, but in the Nazis' hands, it begins to be applied to all sorts of Marxist-flavored activity that they don't like, that they then argue in court is causing public mischief because it's so offending the sensibilities of right-thinking Germans everywhere. So if you are singing, say, The International, or you say Heil Moscow instead of Heil Hitler, right? Like, or if you just talk about Marxist ideas, none of these things are actively calling for any change. You're just saying, hey, look at me. I'm a communist. I'm still a fellow traveler here. But also in other cases, this is applied to people who are simply criticizing the government and the case is made that, well... You're upsetting everybody because everybody's so on board with this new project and you're just, just trying to make everybody mad. And so the punishment for this is still reasonably mild. 
Uh, again, it's a section of the criminal code that was never intended to be applied for this purpose. But in its repurposed capacity, you can be fined 150 marks or you can be arrested. So 150 marks is roughly a week's wages by the late 30s. So you're looking at short-term arrest or you pay a fine. Now again, this law can be applied, and the Nazis do use it over 1933 and 1934, to police a lot of untoward behavior that tends to support political opponents that the middle classes don't stand for or that is just generally unwelcome that judges can reasonably find to have disturbed the peace, right? However, it becomes very difficult to charge somebody for criminal mischief or disturbing the peace if they're just sitting down having a conversation with somebody about what they don't like about the current government. That is still legal. The other problem is that this punishment is not nearly harsh enough for what the Nazis want to do with a communist. Charging them a week's wages as a fine or arresting them for, I've seen anywhere between one to three weeks, is not what is considered an appropriate response to somebody promoting an ideology, seeking the downfall of the German people as the Nazis envision it. So on the one hand, it doesn't capture all activity. On the other hand, it's not harsh enough on the people that it is being used against. So this leads us into a reworking of the criminal code when the Nazis begin to tinker with what qualifies as treason. So if we just step back for a moment and look at the broader context of what's going on in Germany at this time. We've made it through 1933. We've gone through the revolutionary phase where people are being thrown in concentration camps. We've decided we need to back off of that, and instead we're going to start charging for criminal mischief. But again, this isn't strong enough, and even when we're using concentration camps against targeted minorities like communists, civil society is beginning to say that this needs to be brought back under the aegis of law. There's beginning to be widespread concern among conservative nationalist circles that, although we wouldn't make the speech for another few months, Francois Papen calls an anti-Marxist revolution carrying out a Marxist program. The SA is making all of its claims about now's the time for the social revolution. Hitler and Goering and Goebbels are trying to rein in these more revolutionary aspects and the concentration camps are being shut down, and there's this broader move back toward formal policing and formal justice along with that. So it's in this context that in April 1934, a few months into the second year in power, the new law for alteration of the provisions of criminal law and criminal procedure is passed. So these amendments to the Code of Criminal Procedure specifically target treason and high treason. And the way that they're rewritten is intended to expand the concept of treason to include verbal statements under a reworked concept of what constitutes conspiracy to commit treason. So the definition of treason that remains more or less intact revolves around using violence or threat of violence to change the constitution or government of the German Reich, in particular on behalf of a foreign power. The big change comes in section 83, which covers conspiracy to commit treason, the preparation for a treasonous undertaking. 
So the previous law that came under the Kaiserreich had to do with a conspiratorial group discussing and laying plans for an actual undertaking. However, the way the Nazis rewrite this begins to cover any type of Marxist speech as they define it in jurisprudence. So it says, whosoever publicly encourages or incites a treasonous undertaking will be punished with a penitentiary sentence of up to 10 years. Whosoever prepares a treasonous undertaking in other ways will likewise be punished. A death sentence or lifelong imprisonment in a penitentiary or a penitentiary sentence not under two years is to be passed if the crime, one, is intended to establish or maintain organizational connections toward a conspiracy to commit high treason, and three, is intended to influence the masses through production or dissemination of writings, recordings, or visual representations, or through use of telecommunications. So this is huge. Let's break this down, because it affects a number of different issues. So first and foremost, in plain speech, this is saying that if you continue to try and organize on behalf of the Communist Party, you are now engaged in an act of treason. This was because the Communist Party had been banned by the Nazis shortly after they came to power and part of their confrontation with the trade unionists and the other political parties, part of the Enabling Act, all those movements. But now, officially, on the books, if you're trying to organize a banned association, you are a traitor. Now, more important for day-to-day -day life and the policing of speech, whosoever publicly encourages or incites a treasonous undertaking will be punished as well as the rider, this catch-all, that says whosoever prepares a treasonous undertaking in other ways will be likewise punished. So what does that mean? Well, the key lies in the ambiguity of the term incitement. What incites violence or threat of violence? And also, this catch-all rider that's kind of the trump card against anything that they don't like preparing a treasonous undertaking in other ways. That's basically there so that you can say anything that you don't like is treason if it calls for the change of government. This all needs to be justified, though. So what's being said? Well, an exemplary ruling from the higher regional court in Ham, the Oberlandesgericht, published in the national journal German Law, said that symbolic acts of nonconformity, like singing the international or saying how Moscow, quote, sowed dissatisfaction with the current government and disseminated communist ideas from person to person. The use of communist greetings and similar statements in broad daylight reinforces the feeling of solidarity of earlier fellow travelers toward the goal of a Soviet-style republic. Now, over time, this started to be expanded to private conversations. You have a circular from the Ministry of Justice that the Gestapo then made sure was sent out to all of its stations that said leftist statements, anything that talked about how somebody was still a communist or hadn't come over to National Socialism yet or just said that they thought communism was generally a good idea, constituted treasonous propaganda of the word. That's hochverrätische Mundpropaganda, quote, to convince another of the necessity of a violent overthrow with the expectation that in such a case they will actively participate or remain neutral and thereby improve the prospect of success. Because oh, the individual national communist parties were supposedly taking their marching orders from Moscow under the terms of the international, 
the Ministry of Justice stated that proving any communist statements were a conspiracy to commit high treason was, quote, no problem if the offender belonged to a treasonous organization or association, listened to Radio Moscow with others in secrecy, or made criminal statements of a similar nature that reveal a certain systematic approach in the broadest sense. Because communism was associated with Moscow, and because the USSR was a foreign power, you could say that anybody spreading communist ideas was engaged in an act of treason. So, hey presto, anyone talking about the biggest rival to your political ideology is now engaged in an act of treason. This satisfies the desire to be able to prosecute communists simply for being communists if they discuss their ideas. But it doesn't cover all the other general criticism of the Nazi regime that is becoming more and more of a problem over 1934. So if we step back again, once more, take a broader look at what the situation is as we're moving into this era, 1934 begins to present some real issues for the Nazi regime. The kind of honeymoon period after the election and the, the enthusiasm that something is going to change was fading. Uh, only about a third of all of the unemployed workers had been brought back into the workforce. Those keystone infrastructure projects that we talk about as part of rearmament and the building of the Autobahn and things like that, if you get into the local files on how those were financed, the bill keeps getting passed from month to month to different levels of the regime. So it'll be run on the local purse one week. The next week, somebody at the district level might take it over. Then they'll go with hat in hand to the federal level. And then that'll get kicked back down to the state. And if you're the guy carrying the shovel trying to work on the project, that means you might get laid off from week to week, right? Then with shortages in, in foreign exchange currency, there aren't enough raw materials to be in the factories to have regular work. So again, rolling layoffs there. Beyond that, you start to get these botched supply side reforms as the Nazis try and start reorganizing the supply management in agriculture. And so when that happens, the price of margarine starts shooting up and there are shortages and people are really just beginning to get fed up with the new regime. Things aren't changing fast enough. On the other side of the coin, you then have Ernst Röhm and the radical left wing of the Nazi party pushing for social revolution. That's making everybody who is in that kind of national conservative we don't like communists, but you better not talk about replacing the army with some type of national people's service thing under a revolutionary control rather than under the traditional military aristocracy. No, 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 no. Once that conversation starts, there's a real rift within the party. Hitler resolves this through the Night of the Long Knives and through the assassination. And then when it comes to policing the broader frustrations of society and the rising tide of criticism, the party launches this so-called campaign against critics and grumblers. And this campaign runs over the summer, and it's at the height of it that Franz von Papen delivers a famous speech at Marburg. This is what leads into the entire sequence of events around the Night of the Long Knives and, and the removal of the SA leadership. But at the end of the year, there's a keen awareness that the Nazis don't have a good tool to police criticism as such. So criminal mischief is just not cutting it. What's really interesting is that the decree for protection against malicious discrediting of the national government is basically a dead letter. 
because it only governs disinformation. So if you want to get around it, you don't have to be spreading rumors. You can just say, I don't like the Nazis, right? Like, I, I don't think that this is working out. I don't like that there are shortages. I don't like that I got laid off. I think the local politician is corrupt or incompetent. It has to be one or the other, right? So the treason laws govern Marxist statements quite nicely. And criminal mischief is the most commonly used law to prosecute more general critical statements. But there isn't anything that says you can't come out and just criticize the party or try and demean it. You can't make the party a laughing stock. You can't tell political jokes. You can't hold an opinion that is critical of what we are doing. So as the campaign against critics and grumblers wraps up over late summer, discussion begins in the Ministry of Justice about closing this loophole in the decree for protection against malicious discrediting of the national government. They say, what if we change it from being an issue of objective disinformation to covering subjective opinion statements as well? So this is where, by December 1934, really entering into the third year of the new regime, a new law is passed. The law against malicious gossip, and again, for the protection of party uniforms. Now this takes the earlier decree for protection against malicious discrediting and expands it from defamation to really criminalizing criticism as such. And this is where things get serious. And I quote, Whosoever publicly makes spiteful, rabble-rousing, or mean-spirited statements about leading personalities of the state or the Nazi party, about their decrees or the institutions they have established intended to undermine the trust of the people in the political leadership will be punished with jail. Public statements are the same as private statements of ill will. If the offender expected, or must have expected, that the statement would find its way to the public. So in one fell swoop, it is now illegal to criticize the party, not only in public, but in private conversation, if, quote, you must have expected it would reach the public. So the loophole defense that you're just expressing your opinion, man, is now closed. You're not allowed to do that anymore. If it is derogatory of the party, or if it can be determined to somehow stir up sentiment or opinion against the party, that's now illegal. The, all of the previous sections that were discussed in, in the earlier emergency decree, those are kept in paragraph one. So it's still illegal to defame the party. It's still illegal to spread rumors under this new law. But the second paragraph that we just discussed now make any subjective opinion statement that is critical of the leadership or of any Nazi institution or of any Nazi party as it says, of any measures undertaken by the same, you can't say anything bad about the Nazi party in a way that is, quote, mean-spirited or, or spiteful. So again, it leaves it open that if you want to be constructive, you can say anything you want. But if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But that's the law of the land now. Now, it's not a terribly strict punishment, mind you. The length of the average sentence for malicious gossip is three months. 
that goes up later in the war and you're seeing things closer to six or nine months. And by no means do I wish to minimize the fact that people are being put in jail for simply expressing their opinions. That's what makes the Nazis the Nazis, right? But if we're comparing this to the stories that we hear about people being taken to the wall and shot over expressing criticism, we're dealing with a two-speed system here. On the one hand, we have the rewritten treason statutes. You can be sentenced to death for communist statements, for quote-unquote conspiring toward high treason in other ways, right? Just through simple Marxist-flavored nonconformist behavior. Now, it's more common that people are sent to concentration camps or sent to a penitentiary for two or three years for that type of behavior. Longer if you're a former functionary and you're actually trying to organize an underground association in some way. That's the five to ten year range if you look at most of these files. The people who just will not shut up about how the party keeps screwing things up or how things aren't getting better or how it was better before or as the 1934 campaign phrased it, the chronic grumblers and complainers. Those people are targeted by this new law for protection against malicious gossip. They get sent away for three months. Short, sharp, shock. Shut up. Stop criticizing the regime. But a far cry from what you might expect if most of your knowledge about the Nazi regime comes from movies, documentaries, or histories that focus on the experience of persecuted minorities in the concentration camp system. So by 1935, we've really established this sort of two-speed system, one for persecuted minorities, one for people who won't shut up, and a looming threat over everybody else to just, you know, get with the program, be on board, find a way to make it work and help us do what we want to do, or just be quiet about it. This persists up until September 1939, when you have the declaration of war. This is an important moment for the Nazis. A defining experience for many of them when they were young was the experience of the German Revolution in 1919 amidst the collapse of the Kaiserreich during the aftermath of the First World War. The defeat in 1918 came as an absolute shock that in nationalist discourse was not chalked up to, you know, these insane caloric deficits that chalked up over the winters of 1917. Uh, you had people who were trying to subsist on 15 calories a day. These are adult men engaged in factory work. That was sort of the more generous end. People were starving to death. There was something like 600,000 deaths that winter due to malnutrition and other complications with lack of cold. The British, the British blockade had an effect. That's what I'm trying to say here. But in interwar Germany, the story was that the German army had never been defeated in the field and that it was all of these socialists and Jews and Jewish socialists and just nefarious profiteers of the home front, the weakness of the home front had stabbed the fighting men at the front in the back, the stab in the back myth. And that was why Germany had lost the war. 1918, everything was going great until the home front collapsed. So that's not going to happen again. Now, Hitler is very careful to make sure that creature comforts and luxury goods and, you know, luxury pastimes. I mean, like, movie theaters remain open until absurdly late in the war. And, like, luxury restaurants as well in Berlin, up until the last, after 
the last eight months, I think, it's not until the very end that things change. So on the one hand, they're creating a bigger buffer. They're trying to hold off from doing rationing. They're trying to ensure that the civilian population does not feel the shortages of war because they know the moment that it affects people in their thinking, that's, that's part of why it happened. Uh, Hitler recognizes that the shortages had an effect. He just believes that that empowered what he calls criminal elements in German society to undermine it from within and try and have a revolution to create a Soviet republic. So coming from this experience, on the one hand, as I said, there's the attempt to ensure that the war doesn't affect people. But on the other hand, there's a great emphasis placed on controlling information during the war even more than it had been controlled during peacetime. So the wartime special penal code is passed in secret in 1938 in preparation on the lead up to the war and then called into power after the declaration of war a year later in September 1939. It's also passed with a battery of other special laws concerning hoarding and uh, there's another one, the extraordinary radio measures that makes it a crime to listen to foreign radio broadcasts. It can be punishable by death if you discuss the contents of the broadcast openly in public. But right now we're just focusing on speech. So what's in the Special Wartime Penal Code and how is it different from the law against malicious gossip? The Kriegssonderstrafrechtverordnung, also known as the KSSVO, it covers a bunch of territory, but we're particularly interested in Section 5, Zersetzung der Wehrkraft. So the translation that I'm going to use is defeatism, but I wanted to explain the terminology here of Zersetzung specifically, because that's a biology term. It literally means decomposition. So the literal translation of this section is something like decomposition of fighting force or of defense power. It's also been translated as undermining the will to resist, subverting the will to resist, subversion. But as we're going to see, the behavior that it targets is defeatism. The idea that the war is lost, there's nothing that can be done to bring it to a successful resolution. And so I'm just going to call it defeatism. But you should know that specifically, a better translation of it is undermining the will to resist with these kind of Nazi biological undertones that are part of the broader way that they talked about subversion and the idea of corruption from within. So the operative section says, and I quote, a death sentence for undermining the will to resist will punish whosoever publicly supports or incites refusal to serve in the German or an allied military or otherwise publicly seeks to undermine or injure the will of the German or allied people to armed self-assertion. So I'd just like to take a moment there to admire the, the double think of armed self-assertion as a way to describe Germany's involvement in the Second World War. It does reveal the underlying SS mentality in, in many ways about how Germany was under siege by surrounding peoples and the allies were trying to dismember it slowly and ensure that it never rose again from how it had been laid low by the Versailles Treaty. The exact German is 
wer öffentlich den Willen des deutschen oder verbundeten Volkes zur wehrhaften Selbstbehauptung zu blämen oder zu zersetzen sucht. So, a truly Orwellian phrasing there. But ah, I hear you ask, how is this different from malicious gossip? Well, good question, because it cuts a very fine line and is again part of just opening up a spectrum of responses that justice and police officials can use to modulate the severity of the response to unwanted behavior as they deem fit. When I went and I looked at the Gestapo case files, there are very few cases for Verkaufsersetzung. It does not really appear on the books as something that people are being prosecuted for, at least for Section 5. And again, this is something that I, I hasten to point out was intended to be used in the military and was only later through agreement applied to civilians. So it's only after 1943 with defeat at the Battle of Stalingrad that you start to see the looming threat of a death sentence for defeatism as implied in undermining the will to resist as, as promulgated in wartime special penal code begin to be applied to the civilian population. Even then, as with the treason statutes, the threat of the death sentence is more there as a deterrent than as something that is exercised in sentencing. I've yet to come across a case where somebody is actually executed for defeatism. I have seen people be sent to concentration camps for being a communist and then quote-unquote shot while attempting to escape, the well-known euphemism for institutionalized murder of people who were in the camp by the guards. But you don't tend to see the Oberlandesgericht at, at Hamm hand down death sentences for treason, just the same way that you don't tend to see it hand down death sentences for undermining the will to resist defeatism. Those cases get passed up the line. They get held in front of the Volksgerichthof in Berlin. So there are death sentences that are handed out and published, and there's this huge publicity surrounding every time there's what's what's referred to behind the scenes in the ministerial documents as a, a demonstrative or an illustrative or deterrent sentence, right? Like a very harsh public facade. But in the actual sentencing, treason tends to run for five years. And, and in this case, we're talking about people who are actually involved in organizing Uh, serious statements by former communist functionaries tend to go for two years. Those cases are ones where people might be picked up after the fact and taken to a concentration camp after their release, particularly after the beginning of the war in 1939. That happens. You don't tend to see that in the 20 or so undermining the will to resist cases that I looked at. You tend to see somebody sent to penitentiary for a year and a half And then down at the bottom of the scale, you have your sort of average Germans who just won't shut up about criticizing the regime. They, they are being hit with three-month sentences that tends to rise over time as you get closer to the end of the war. This point, though, this takes us up to fall 1944, where things get considerably more complicated. The laws surrounding evacuations and executions and uh, who can be executed by who, when, under what circumstances, that's when things get complicated. 
if you're interested in that, I would commend some of the earlier episodes to you, particularly the the first 10 or 15 where Chris and I are talking about and really trying to sort through the responsibility of different groups. The one on Gabriela Latvi has a lot of good information about that. But at that point, you need to get into a much bigger discussion that goes into decrees and how institutions are operating rather than just how the law is playing out. Things change and so many more actors become involved in the late war. It's not it's not clear-cut within the justice system who has the upper hand in political policing between the courts and between the Gestapo, especially the way the concentration camp system complicates things. So I by no means wish to downplay the complexity of that system. That's why I'm writing a book about it. But the the late war stuff is just more complicated than you can really begin to characterize neatly as just a, an afterthought on an episode about criticism. So that that covers our grand scope here. Uh, like I said, you can see how defamation law first becomes a vehicle that's applied to the party, then is expanded to subjective opinion statements rather than just dif- disinformation. The treason statutes are reworked in order to be able to have an instrument to silence communists and other types of Marxist nonconformist behavior that is unwanted by classifying it as treason, harshly punished to to keep it underground and prevent people from organizing any underground associations. And then finally, after the war is declared, a looming threat of death for any defeatism, but in practice, not really used until, again, the war begins to turn against Germany. There is a lot of changes that happens in policing after the Battle of Stalingrad in 1943. It's only when the war turns against Germany that the system really begins to affect average Germans rather than the target of minorities who have been persecuted from day one. But that is a discussion for a different podcast. Just a final thought, though. When people talk about totalitarian regimes, this idea of a party or an ideology that encompasses the totality of society and determines every aspect of its life, one of the gut checks that in many cases leads leads us astray, but also speaks to something fundamental about the nature of these authoritarian regimes is whether or not someone is free to speak their mind. Now, with the debates today about political correctness and whether somebody is allowed to speak on a particular platform or not, I think it's important that we step back and that we have some real perspective on what it means to criminalize speech. A lot of loose rhetoric is thrown around that calls Orwell to mind or essentially tries to equate what happened in a place like Nazi Germany with deplatforming in the present day. But what we need to keep in mind is that in Nazi Germany, these were real laws that did not just criminalize imminent action and threat of violence to another human being, but the expression of a subjective opinion. These were real laws with real consequences. People went to jail for them. And I think it's important that we remember those distinctions, those to pretend that what is happening today has anything to do with what happened earlier in that respect is, is disingenuous. At the same time, people are having that gut check moment and, and finding that they do feel inhibited in what they can say. The monk debates this year addressed this very topic, and there are reasons for that feeling that bear greater discussion. However, a feeling 
of being inhibited is not the same as the state arresting you and punishing you and sending you to jail for expressing an opinion. And it's important that we keep that distinction in mind. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.